Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. sure what to do with this up here so I was standing back there ready to go and just waiting for Ryan to give me the cue hey thanks Ryan Chris Ashley that was uh, really helpful really appreciate your participation this morning that was great all right kids if you're here today we're glad to have you here but we're going to let you go okay you can head out for um, programming design just for you yeah, great. And just by way of continuing that theme of letting you know what's going on, every Sunday when we get together, we uh, sing, we, we have um, a set of uh, rituals that we go through, one of which is to take a portion of the Bible and spend some extended time thinking through it, talking about it, and ultimately trying to identify what it means for us, um, believing that somehow God is at work even in our day wanting to catch us up into this story that's been going on uh, literally since the beginning of time. And so this is a historic kind of thing that has an immediate consequence, and, and we take that seriously. So we give it the time we, we believe it deserves. And, and we also realize that something has to happen besides just us gathering here. Um, I may or may not do a good job this morning. Jury is out on that one. But that's immaterial as to whether or not God kind of helps us to see something that we didn't see or maybe have forgotten about as we were coming in. And, you know, everybody's life is full of stuff, and we get that. And so gathering together like this and consciously choosing to remind ourselves and one another is such a valuable part of what we do. And uh, seeing that we need God to help us with that, let's uh, collectively just pray, and I'll lead us. And, and ask for his presence and help this morning in this part of our service. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are there. Everything in our world argues against your presence and reality. Bad things happening to good people. Tragedies that are unexplainable. Illnesses, setbacks, surprises. For some reason, we're skeptical at heart. And so when it comes to Christmas, sometimes that skepticism just settles into our soul and we get cynical and cold and just a little bit disillusioned. Our prayer this morning is that you would break through like Jesus did at his birth in our hearts and help us, if for no other period of time than just right now, to see Jesus the Savior of the world, the rescuer of each of us individually and personally. And if you will help us in that way, we will be so grateful. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, this is my first Christmas in Florida, and um, I have to tell you, it's a little weird. Maybe it's a lot weird. I actually feel quite out of place um, Karen's sister was visiting last week, and on Tuesday, 
she took her back to the airport in Orlando and they stopped by celebration on the way to the airport. And I'm sure you all know celebration, but celebration's kind of new to us yet. So it's this kind of Disney town, you know, that's dressed up for the holidays. So they've got all the lights and trees and decorations. And Karen sent me this picture while they were there and they actually had snow on the ground falling from some contraption. Um, and a little bit down past the snow, she said there was actually an ice skating rink. I was like, wait, what? This is Florida. You don't move to Florida for snow and ice skating. That's stuff that happens where, where I came from, but it's all part of the holiday magic. And Disney being Disney, by golly, there is going to be holiday magic. So there were lights and trees and snow and ice. Um, Monday night, we actually got in the car and uh, drove around Lakeland looking at light displays. And I, I, this is not unique to Florida by any stretch, but is there not a certain kind of absurdity when you see a lawn filled with inflatables consisting of Santa and reindeer, the Grinch, Frosty and Olaf the snowman, a bunch of lights and candy canes, and then the little placard out in front, Jesus is the reason for the season. <laughs> Have you seen those? I, it was, it's just like poof, something pops in your mind and you realize, man, that's a little confusing. Add to it the parades and the, the lunches and holiday gatherings and the endless programs and cantatas, whatever a cantata is. You know, that's a word we never use any other time of the year. Oh, yeah, we're going to go down to the cantata. I think of that as a kind of Hispanic sort of restaurant any other time in the year. But this time of year, it is a particular musical program that kids at schools and churches put on. So uh, it's easy for me. It's easy for everybody to get a little bit disoriented when it comes to the holiday season, to feel a little bit weird, a little bit out of place. And it seems as though the, the holiday movie industry has kind of capitalized on this sense of frustration we feel as modern Western American Christmas celebrators. You know the story. You know, you meet this kind of harried and hassled hero uh, right at the beginning, and they're noble and they're sweet, but for the life of them, they just can't seem to catch a break. And it goes from one disheartening scene to another disheartening scene. And early on, you believe that, boy, it's just not ever going to work out for this if it weren't for the fact that this is a Christmas story. And then, about 15 minutes in, the hero's hopes are nearly crushed, but some kind of Christmas miracle occurs. A puppy shows up on their door. Or an elderly stranger moves in next door. Creepy at first, but wait in 45 minutes, that table is going to turn. Or a possible new romantic interest shows up on the scene, and out of nowhere, things began to change. And for the next 45 minutes, this series of events takes place where the hero's almost cynical decline into despair is slowly peeled back, and you start to think, maybe, just maybe, it's going to work out for them. And then, bam, it's all crushed. And you wonder whether it's ever going to happen again. But right there, at that moment, another Christmas miracle happens. And they find their way out. Things start to work out for them. 
And suddenly they have this existential experience where they come to believe. Or they, they learn to love again. Or some other kinds of thing. And the music swells and they come to the end of the story and everybody's happy. And it's a very memorable Christmas for everyone. Have you seen that movie? I forget the title, but you know the title, right? Yeah, no, no wonder the modern American can be confused about the meaning of Christmas. Ian mentioned last week when he talked about uh, liturgies those repeating cycles, those recurring practices that are built into our lives and they shape how we think and how we believe and how we live our lives. And and I've just described for you kind of an American Christmas holiday liturgy, haven't I? What I just described is exactly how Christmas played out during the months of end of November and December as it did last year. And guess what? Everybody in this room is absolutely convinced it's going to do the same thing next year. And as far back as we can remember as Americans in our life, that's been how Christmas has played out. And somehow we kind of, I don't know, just assume that that's what Christmas is all about. But I have to tell you that for the Christian church throughout the ages until probably somewhere just south of our lifetimes, Christmas has been about the arrival of this promised serpent crusher that Ian talked about last week. It has been about the arrival of real and true and authentic hope. The problem that Ian introduced to us last week that would require an event like Christmas has the prospects of being solved now. The promise that was made all those thousands of years ago from prehistoric times right up until now maybe, just maybe, in this baby born will be realized. And I'd like to focus this morning from the passage that Anna read on the person who is the focal point of what we've come to call Christmas. So Matthew's gospel, the passage we read, um, he kind of starts like a documentary would start, don't you think? And by the way, I think that would be helpful for you to think about. To think about the gospels, which is kind of this religious word that has all kinds of spooky and maybe mysterious connotations. Think about the gospel as Matthew's documentary about the life of Jesus. Most people these days are familiar with like YouTube documentaries. That's kind of where uh, our generations are going now to find their understanding of truth and history. So so think of Matthew's gospel kind of like a, a documentary. And he's laying out from his experience through his lens the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, who is proclaimed to be Christ the Lord. And he's contending that that definition of who Jesus is changes everything. But as I said, the the story starts out exactly where you'd expect it to start off. Jesus comes from a lineage. He's a son of Abraham. That is, born into the line of descendants of Abraham himself. He's a son of David, that subset of the line of Abraham, born into the line of David, just like the promises and the prophecies had predicted. And uh, we get some details about his birth. You know, that's what gives people substance. That's what gives our story substance, isn't it? We use things like, oh, yeah, she was a tough labor. And every time your birthday comes, I remember how hard you were. And that's the beginning of you. 
You know, you don't remember how hard you were. I mean, it was probably hard, but you don't remember. But every time your birthday rolls around, and you were a, you were a tough one. Or he weighed eight pounds and uh, eight, eight and a half pounds. Oh, he was a big one. And you hear that every birthday. Oh, he was a big one. He was an eight and a half pounder. Yeah, but he was a keeper. Ever heard that kind of? Yeah, that's the beginning of you. It's something substantial about your beginning. And so this is what Matthew provides us. He provides us with something substantial about Jesus' delivery and Jesus' arrival on the planet so that we can begin to get this impression and this reality that he was a real person being born. It wasn't just a fairy tale, a fable, something made up, but a real authentic human being was brought into the world. There's something so much more about Jesus' birth that Matthew points to. Look at what he says in the 21st verse, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the 20th verse of, his, uh, pa- uh, of this passage. He says, all this, took place that the, uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's saying everything that I've just said, this lineage that he was born from, the uh, interesting events that took place around his birth, all of that was meticulously choreographed so as to fulfill this prophecy about a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. You see what Matthew's suggesting here? He's claiming that Jesus, born to Mary, was the ultimate fulfillment of a promise the Lord made through prophecies delivered at least 700 years before Jesus' actual birth. That prophetic statement is just one of many in this broad, deep volume of prophetic promises about a son, an offspring, a seed who would come into the world and somehow save the world from what had gone wrong. The angel of the Lord who appeared to Joseph in a dream, he tapped into that long-expected string of promises that Ian introduced last week that Matthew's introducing to him. He says this, But as Joseph considered these things, by the way, let's just pause there, specifically the things Joseph was considering, if you remember the passage, is whether or not he should divorce his pregnant fiancée, knowing full well that he had no role in her pregnancy, a dilemma that would make sense to anybody at any time. So while he was considering these things, a true Christmas miracle occurred. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, talk about a leap of faith here, okay? That's a rather extreme explanation for an unmarried woman's pregnancy. Joseph had to get over this hurdle of realizing that the angel was saying she has not been sexually unfaithful to you, even though she is expecting. And the angel concludes saying, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's what we want to spend our time thinking about this morning. That is the main point of Christmas. Simply this, it's always going to be a son who saved the world and the world really needed to be saved and what i'd like to do is i'd like to use matthew's gospel just on a survey level to help us identify who the son is how it is he saved the world and ultimately what that means to us
So in the passage we've just read, just kind of unpacked a little bit, Matthew contends that Jesus' birth happened as it did to, quote-unquote, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So let's just unpack the implications of what that little phrase means for a second. First of all, the big implication is this. There is a God who actually exists and possesses in his person the ability to reveal beforehand what is going to happen and then has the power and wisdom to bring that event foretold to pass exactly as he decrees. That's massive. That is a massive assumption in a world that believes that somehow time and chance conspired to vomit out human existence and we're just the flotsam and jetsam of cosmic accident. To start with the presupposition that there's a God who is able to call the future before it happens and then bring it to pass according to his decree is massive. And Matthew's implying that's exactly what's happening, but there's more. This God who reveals in advance what is going to happen, he speaks through a prophet. In this particular case, that prophet is the prophet Isaiah, who actually happened to write a book that's contained in the part of the Bible we call the Old Testament. Okay, So this is God's normal way of communicating. If he's going to say something to the totality of mankind, he's going to say it through a person who is given this function of being a prophet. Now, you've got to understand, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Isaiah lived 700 years before the events surrounding Jesus' birth. You also must understand that in the Old Testament economy, if somebody was going to be called a prophet, it was a life or death proposition, literally, because if you were a prophet from God, one thing had to be true. What you said had to come to pass, or you were a fake. And you can read through some of the passages of the law to understand that the penalty for being a fake prophet were severe and extreme to the point of capital punishment in their economy. And so here's Isaiah. He is making a prophecy that Matthew quotes 700 years later, and it should raise in your mind this question. Well, how did anybody know that Jesus is who he was talking about? And the fact is, they didn't. They couldn't. Nobody could. However, there was another implication to his prophecy. So that, this is the way it is oftentimes with prophecy. Many times there is an immediate implication of what is going to happen based on what was said. And then there's this deeper, longer, more eternal kind of implication that is packaged up in it together. And they both exist at the same time. So if we were to turn back to Isaiah, um, what Isaiah wrote had implications for the narrow window of time in which he lived. Uh, quick history lesson. So Isaiah was writing in a time where a guy named Ahaz was the king. He was a floundering kind of king over a struggling sort of kingdom. The kingdom was Judah, one of the tribes uh, of Israel. And to his north were a couple of warlords, this is more what they are than actual kings. They're called kings, but they were just warlords. They were bad guys, gang leaders who had control over a big hunk of territory. And they decided that they wanted to move into Ahaz's territory. Well, it was a serious threat. 
Because generally speaking, when warlords moved into those territories, they wiped out everything, pillaged everything, and it was just carnage. So Ahaz was rightly concerned. Somehow in his mind, he crafted this idea that I know, I will go to the real king, the king of Assyria, that lives north of both of these bad guys, and I will make an alliance with him. And he will protect me from them. So after that plan had been crafted in Ahaz's mind, God puts it in Isaiah's heart to go to Ahaz. And he says to Ahaz, basically advising him, listen, don't make the alliance with Assyria. And he offers Ahaz this opportunity to test God. God has said, Ahaz, I will take care of the nation of Judah. Nothing bad will happen to them on your watch. I'm going to back that up. And then Isaiah says to Ahaz, go ahead, ask God to do anything to prove that I'm telling you the truth, and he'll do it, which is, again, the bottom line of a prophet. What he says has to come true. Ahaz, whose mind had already been made up, he had already decided what he was going to do. He said, well, no, no, far be it from me to ask God. Why? I'm not going to test the Lord. And so he deferred because, as I said, his mind was already made up. And so from there, Isaiah goes on to pronounce this prophecy that Matthew references. But let me read the whole prophecy for you. It'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. Um, Isaiah says, in this context, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land of those two kings you dread will be deserted. Period. Pause. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day Ephraim departed from Judah. Namely, the king of Assyria. So what's Isaiah saying here? He's taking the picture of the amount of time that passes between the time a child is born and grows up to the place where they're able to eat for themselves. Curds and honey is what he's talking about here. And before the time that he or she is able to tell the difference between good and evil and actually make the choice to not choose evil. We would say at our point in time, at our, our stage of understanding that that's generally going to be somewhere between 8 to 12 years old, okay? So here's, here's the bottom line of what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz in this context of Ahaz wanting to go to Syria instead of trusting God. He's saying, listen, Ahaz, just hold on, man. Just wait. I know that you're at risk. I know that things look bleak. I know that there's a big problem. But I'm telling you, God is not going to let bad things happen. Give it time. The amount of time necessary for a child to go from point A to point B. And I'm telling you, by that time, those two guys there will be no problem any longer. I'm also telling you that if you go with the king of Syria, that choice is going to have implications for you and your people beyond what you would ever dread. Don't make the choice. And guess what happened in Isaiah's day? Exactly what he said. Exactly what he said. 
it validated that Isaiah was a prophet because here he was calling out seven to ten years in advance what was going to happen on the political scene of his day. And to the letter, it played out, proving that he had indeed heard from God. And now what Matthew does is he pulls that in and he says, but wait, 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 wait. There's actually something bigger and broader going on here. And that something bigger and broader was ultimately fulfilled on that night when Mary gave birth to a son who was named Jesus, who had come to save the world. And as I'd mentioned, as Ian started out last week, it's always been a son who's going to save the world. To the serpent, to Adam, to Eve, it was going to be Eve's offspring, a child of hers that would crush the head of the serpent. But she had children, and none of them delivered. They either went bad quickly or they got killed in the going bad. And things went from bad to worse. And then there was Abraham. And Abraham, and God said to Abraham, through you, I am going to bless the world. I'm going to bring blessing. It's not going to be you that does it, but through you, I'm going to do it. And one of your sons will be the fulfillment of the promise. But Isaac was, hmm. you read through the record, and he's just kind of a footnote. Yeah, he had a great start, but mm, just kind of fell flat after that great start. He had two kids, Jacob and Esau, and they were, mm, they were problems from the beginning. One was a scoundrel. The other was just distracted at best. They never really materialized into anything. And Jacob had 12 sons. They were just a bunch of hoodlums. You read the story. They, they were gangsters. Yeah, they had one notable guy, Joseph, but he ended up making a difference, not because he was brilliant, but because God needed to send somebody ahead to rescue his people from a famine he knew was going to be coming. Judah was a pretty decent story. I mean, he started out as the black sheep of the family, and he ended up kind of being the leader of the family at the end of the book of Genesis. But that's it. These, these guys were scoundrels. And then there was David. Well, David at least had some hope. He was a man after God's heart. He was called the sweet psalmist of Israel, this really brilliant, artistic kind of guy. He was this magnificent military leader. But uh, David had some baggage too. He had some baggage too. And God said, David, you want to build me a house? But no, I'm not going to let you build, build me a house. What I'm going to do is I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to tell you what. One of your sons is going to sit on your throne and his kingdom will last forever. And so David had a quandary. <laughs> Which of my sons do I pick for this great and auspicious thing? Solomon was picked, and Solomon, pretty impressive. You read the record, he was pretty impressive, but mm, just didn't quite rise to the occasion. And then it gets worse and worse and worse as you read through the rest of the sons of David's history. Do you get the point that I'm making here? There's always going to be a son but all the sons, to the count of millions and millions and millions that were being born, were not the one. But Matthew comes on the scene, and now he's looking back over what he had experienced like a documentary director. And he's saying, that son did come, and his name was Jesus. In fact, all of Matthew's gospel, by the way, if you're joining us right now in the community Bible reading schedule, I hope you are. 
Um, Ian's going to talk about a couple books we have back there. If you're not, I invite you to start joining on uh, that right now. But we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew right now. And I don't know about you, but I'm loving Jesus. He is just so amazing. The Gospel of Matthew kind of rises to this crescendo in Matthew chapter 16. There's this event in Matthew 16 that the whole book turns on. And like a, a master director, Matthew kind of brings us along to that point. And you'll read it. If you're reading the community Bible reading, you'll get, get to it on Tuesday or Monday or Tuesday this week. So I'm, I'm setting you up for it. He takes the disciples away on a little retreat. They're up on a mountain, and uh, by this time, there's this huge controversy about Jesus swelling. I mean, he's casting out demons. He's raising dead people. He's healing everybody who comes along the scene. He's teaching in ways that are just astonishing people. And it's like, where did this guy come from, and who is he? In one of the chapters just before chapter 16, Herod, the, the king of the region, said, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. What kind of crazy idea is that? Where do you get that stuff? But that's what was going on. And so Jesus asked the disciples, he said, uh, who do people say that I am? The disciples had the word on the street, and so they say, well, some of them say John the Baptist. Others say one of the prophets from old has come back again. Some say Elijah, and blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus kind of deftly turns the tables, and he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Matthew chapter 16 Peter perks right up. He says, you are the Christ, which means you are the one who has been promised since the beginning. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And get what happens next. Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon, which is another way of saying, you nailed it. You are spot on correct. Blessed are you, Simon, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And don't miss what's happening here. These guys didn't quite get everything that this confession meant, but somehow they had become convinced that Jesus was that serpent-crushing son prophesied. Now, once this realization had been arrived at by his close followers... Jesus immediately employs that tactic of the prophets. He starts to predict what is going to happen in the near term to validate that he is in control of what is going on. Check what happens next. Shortly after this uh, confession by Peter, Jesus says, uh, Matthew records this, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Right over their heads, man. And he said this no less than three times in the next short string of chapters. And all the while, what you see in Matthew now is this march to Jerusalem. Exactly what Jesus said would take place Weeks or months before it actually occurred, he begins to orchestrate. And the rest of the story of Matthew, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, is basically the story of how what he said would happen actually did happen. But there was something bigger going on. There was something deeper going on. There was something more eternal happening than just those immediate events. 
Because remember what the angel said to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What's really happening next is that Jesus is carrying out the salvation of mankind. The disciples at the time didn't know what was going on any more than Ahaz knew what was going on when Isaiah gave that initial prophecy. They just didn't have a clue. But we could resort to another of Isaiah's prophecies to give a commentary on what was happening. In fact, let me do that. Let me just, let's just see if how these realities dawn on the apostles dawn on you. I'm going to go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. I'm going to read that chapter for you. Remember, it was written 700 years before a single New Testament epistle was written. And if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, I'm hoping and praying that lights are going to start going off in your mind. And you're going to realize, oh my goodness, that's what was going on as Jesus made his way down to Jerusalem to be mistreated by the scribes and Pharisees, to be killed and to rise again. Hear what Isaiah has to say. He starts, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. <laughs> he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as on one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then Isaiah goes a little reflective and says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what it was like for us. He stepped in. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought peace to us. And with his wounds, we are healed. <laughs> All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Is that not one of the most beautiful things you have ever heard? And does that not tap into that deep and real and eternal fulfillment of this promise that a son will come and he will save the world? And Matthew's making the contention that that's exactly what happened. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, born of a woman, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's how he did it. Here's how he did it. The immediate events that Jesus predicted would happen in relationship to him were playing out to this greater and bigger and more eternal reality that extends with benefits to us and to thousands and thousands throughout time. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means at least two things. If you're like Peter, back in Matthew chapter 16, or Matthew, who wrote it all down, then you, like them, have come to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God himself. And let me remind you of this. The same thing that was true for Peter is true for you. It's not your brilliance that brought you to that conclusion. It's not your worthiness that brought you to that conclusion. In the same way, that it was the Father who opened Peter's eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. That's happened with you if you have come to see him for who he really is. So I'm telling you this. What does that mean for you? Rejoice. Rejoice. Your sin has been covered. Jesus himself has stepped into the flood of God's wrath on our behalf and he has borne our sins and God has seen his deed and accounted us righteous who place our faith, our confidence, our trust, our hope in him. Jesus is the son of God who came to save the world and in seeing and in trusting him, we are saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if that defines where you are, how you see Jesus, then rejoice. The son has come, the world has been saved and you're part of that salvation. But here's the other implication for us. It means repent. It means repent. 
We sometimes think of repenting as this thing way in the background that we did at one time and one size fits all and lasts forever. No, 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 no. If the events surrounding Jesus reveal the Son of God, then the reality with me and probably with you is even though I see him for who he is and I kneel before him because of who he is, I forget I get disoriented. I get confused. I start to rely on other things to make sense of my life and my place in it. When in reality, I'm alive only in Him. And my identity is wrapped up totally in Him. I am not my best self now, but someday He shall make me that. And every time I forget, I need to repent. It means renouncing all those self-serving, all those escapist habits that I resort to in my attempt to hedge against my fear of, of death, my fear of rejection, my fear of failure, my fear of, fear of despair. It means that I need to let go of my futile attempts to fit in and just have a little fun. It means I've got to be honest about the reality that for all the years in my life that I've pursued those things hard, they have never delivered. And they never will. The only salvation there is is in Jesus. And when I forget that, when I start to behave as though it exists someplace else, then the only logical response is to repent and renounce that falsehood. And repentance is part of the ongoing liturgy of Christ's followers. So as I said at the beginning, every Sunday we choose to get together and remind ourselves again and again of what Jesus did. And that's all I've done today. If you've been around church for any length of time, I've told you nothing new today. But it's something I needed to hear. It's something you needed to hear. It's the basis for our rejoicing. And it's the motivation for our repenting. And so as we come to this point in the service, let's pray again, asking for God's help, and then we'll introduce what comes next in hopes that God will continue to help us to rejoice and to repent.